Welcome to the Blue Roads Changemaker Podcast. I'm Patty Talbot, CEO and co-founder of Blue Roads Education Group. In this series, you'll enjoy hearing from amazing changemakers, solutionaries, and social innovators who have taken the path from local citizen to global changemaker by working to change the system that creates the world's most challenging issues. We structure these interviews around the Blue Roads slogan, Homegrown Solutions for a Patchwork World, and ask participants to tell us about their origins, their work to address issues in their communities, how they've engaged with others different from themselves, and how they've used these experiences to make the leap to changemakers addressing the UN Sustainable Development Goals. As their host, I try hard to take myself out of the conversation as much as possible, so you won't notice the typical back and forth of the interview process. I hope this will help you to hear their stories as a complete narrative that addresses all four quadrants of the Blue Roads Changemaker journey, homegrown solutions for a patchwork world. Welcome back to my conversation with Changemaker Dana Mortensen, CEO and co-founder of World Savvy. In part one, Dana shared her upbringing and learning experiences that led to the founding of World Savvy, as well as how that work unfolded from the early days to include experiences with a broad range of people from across cultures. In today's episode, Dana updates us on World Savvy's growing influence and includes a reflection of her hopes for education as the world recovers from the COVID-19 pandemic in full swing at the time of this conversation. World Savvy's journey, you know, starting back in 2002, we spent the first five years going deep and saying, working with students, working with teachers and trying to understand what did they need? How could this sort of approach to teaching and learning work inside a school with all of its complexities and all the challenges that teachers face? And then just doing a lot of listening, just talking to anyone that would listen. And so I think in the early days of World Savvy, expanding influence was a spent a disproportionate amount of time doing what I would say is generating demand, talking about listen, the world is changing. The way that we're teaching young people isn't preparing them for the for one job, a 40-year career at a at an automobile plant anymore. Like we're preparing them for a new reality in the workforce. We're preparing them for a new reality in our communities where I'm as likely to have a Somali and a Hmong neighbor as I am a white neighbor, where cultures and languages and every kind of diversity is, we're much more proximate to it wherever we're living. And that that's, it's just going to change how we have to think about it. Never mind the fact that classrooms are now you know, um, population under 18 is a collective majority. And so if you're teaching in a classroom, you are much, much more likely to have this rich and wonderful expanse of diversity in terms of linguistic and cultural and ethnic diversity. We spent that first five years just really going deep and trying to understand not so much developing more curriculum and content because there's lots of that out there that's great. And, And what we saw is this sort of implementation gap where if you were an educator that was kind of confined in this old system, you go to a wonderful human rights conference and come back with sort of three-week units and have zero capability to figure out how to make time for that. I mean, it was an unrealistic expectation. So it was those very early days where Medea and I started to learn from and with educators to say, well, how do we think about it differently and think about this as actually sort of a baked-in part of pedagogy? And maybe it's less about fitting in more content and more about the approach, right, to teaching and learning, which is how we develop things like our case study pedagogy and 
looking at inquiry-based methodology and project-based learning. And, and I think trying for teachers to dislodge this notion that they had to be an expert. I have a degree in international affairs. I think that's like as, you know, as useless as the monopoly money I played with my girls in yesterday to a degree, other than that it taught me to think in a certain way. But you, you could read enough this week to be more up to speed on a lot of the issues that I studied now 20 years ago. And so it's not to say I don't value that that degree is there, but it's to say that I don't think any of us with a world that's changing this rapidly and and also is this complex and interdependent can have can be expected to have subject matter expertise across every arena. And so the job of an educator becomes, well, how do you then facilitate learning in this changing world, in this complex space where there's, oh my God, there's so much to know, right? The half-life of knowledge is like shrinking every second. And now kids can get more knowledge on the internet. And how can I possibly be expected to know? And the answer is you can't which is back to my sort of notions around knowledge. So those early years were around saying, okay, so what does it look like to build a practice that centers this? And so, you know, around the five-year mark is when we really started that thinking about expansion outside of the Bay Area. So that expansion of influence was on the one hand, building world savvy, raising funds, building partnerships, talking to new schools, figuring out, meeting people like you, right? That we didn't know were out there who were in their own right leading incredible work around this, these same philosophically aligned ideas. And so I think that has been true to current day. And then also just trying as hard, I think personally for me as I can to continue to remember to kind of swim in the deep end with change makers and other thinkers who challenge me, sort of make sure I'm pushing myself to be as innovative and creative as I can be about the work that we're doing. And that it's so ironic in a way when you're doing work in the space of trying to embed global competence into education, which is by default, this idea that comfort, comfort with change and ambiguity, how are you going to be adaptive as an educational institution as the world changes? But then you also have to figure out how to be that way as an organization, right? If you're going to be a change maker in that space. And so I think one of the things in the global education field that bothered me when I got into it, we've talked about this a lot, Patty, is that it felt it felt a little bit elitist. I would go to conferences where it would be folks who are from coastal cities or better resourced um, districts and didn't get a lot of Oklahoma or Nebraska or you know, even Minnesota up in, up in those conversations. And so I, even though I came from an international affairs background, which I mentioned at the time, felt like only wonky policy folks are supposed to know these things. My deep belief was always like, no, every single person <laughs> needs to know these things. I think that more recently has been a real expanding sp spheres of influence have been related to, I think about it in terms of expanding spheres of learning. I think as a change maker, you generate influence when you continue to keep yourself open to learning not only more about what you're already doing, but how about how other people are contributing to that tapestry of innovation and how their thinking can influence and change what you're doing. There definitely were some pivot points, though. I think joining the Ashoka family and becoming an Ashoka fellow in 2011, that was swimming in the deep end of the pool. And so when those kinds of opportunities come up and when you're, you know, in thinking about expanding the footprint, I leaned into them as much as I could. You know, after the first three years of the fellowship, I, I help with panel selection. You know, I'm, I meet up with other fellows and help Ashoka think through their Changemaker Schools Network or I'm engaging with their Ashoka U work. And it's just one example, but there's other coalitions like that where if I see an opportunity to, to be challenged and consistently wowed by such a fantastic group of thinkers, I take it.
this idea of kind of expanding the effective citizenship to broader impact on the world is it's very relationship based to me. And it still comes down to thinking about how to have these conversations over and over and figure out how they connect to complement and also bolster other things that people care about, right? If you care about workforce readiness, well, our movement to change the way education is, is going to help you. And let's talk about how. And so I think I've learned not to be precious about the language of your movement, right? Because there are places in the country for whom global competence is just not ringing a lot of bells. And that's okay because it's relevant learning and workforce readiness. And it is, that's what it is. Or it's social and emotional health and well-being and inclusion. Or it's about equity. It's about creating a framework where every student's identity and every student's opportunity to access the agency that's within them is, is on a level playing field. And so I think that's been a good lesson in terms of expanding spheres of influence is that when you're too precious about what it is you want to frame or call or coin in terms of a, an approach, getting people on board is much more of a heart-centered thing, right? It has to resonate, meet people where they are. And so- we are now, you know, we've hit some big milestones, um, you know, rounded the three quarters of a million students engaged over the years and a little more than 1,100 schools and, and more than 6,000 educators and across 29 states. And we're excited about that. But I think looking ahead, we're consolidating this model to really look at whole school change and how do we bring all the different things that we've done to bear inside kind of school as the unit of change and figure out what it looks like to go get get to a sustaining place so that school is kind of always integrating this in terms of you know teaching learning and culture that's been a journey and we're we're on that with a bunch of schools across the the US and it's been as fun to do as it has been to learn from as well any organization having to be adaptive in the space this pandemic has also given us an opportunity to think about i think to the point of your model which is like being a change maker is also being so open and almost eager and anxious to understand how to pivot when something happens you didn't expect. And so our team is our great pivot. We call it kind of making pandemic lemonade out of the lemons we've all been handed in this crisis is to bring three quarters of the work that we have been doing, instructional coaching and professional development and student engagement around design challenges into an online space so that if we have a new normal and Our job is to still prepare young people. Ironically, the competencies that we're teaching prepare them to navigate the kinds of situations we're seeing, I would argue, quite quite a bit better than we've seen. This is can come in quite handy. For those who had a resistance around whether you can operate or function in a virtual environment, you had to, right, in some way. And maybe that felt like a success to you, and maybe it didn't, depending on where you were teaching or what you were doing. But nevertheless, like you were forced to flex that muscle. I think there will be some significant conversation that I think is a good one. I'm a believer that there's some things you can facilitate in an online environment and things that you can't. And I think that we're going to see some, at least a movement towards making sure that people have the capacity to be thinking about that. And right now, most teacher ed programs, you're not required to have that as a, as a skill set when you're coming in the classroom. I think that will change how we think about it, because I think Although I certainly hope I don't, we don't go through another pandemic in my lifetime. These issues, we are now, we are interconnected and interdependent with the world. And this will not be the last time that we face something. I do agree with you that it's unique in that I've never, I've never lived through anything where the entire world is experiencing something with the same velocity on the one hand, but also urgency. That's, that's highly unusual. And again, demonstrates better than anything I can around how globally interconnected we are. 
The other thing though, I think is really important. And one of the things I've been thinking about and I'm, I'm trying to write about now is that the, the way we think about education as student-centered and passion-driven, and to your point is what can come out of this when we come back, is having students learn about and explore things they care about and things they want to do in their community. If we are in a world in which we return to school, but you're, you're home one month and you're back, you're in school one month because there's waves of social distancing before a vaccine or whatever that new normal might turn out to be, like we are wired as human beings to learn. And the over-facilitation of that and the over-structuring of it over time has probably crushed some of that creativity, right? And so there is a reality in which it's a little bit of an opening to say, well, what can kids do, right? When it isn't a teacher-centered environment, but it really is a student-centered environment, can they have the opportunity? And, and I kind of have two little experiments living in my house, right? I have a first and a second grader where, you know, we tried for a week of doing things that were more regimented and then said, well, you know, like, what do you really want to learn how to do? Or what are you wondering about? Like, what problem would you solve so that they can figure out what they want to focus on and do? And I think those lessons coming back into school are going to be really important. There's a couple articles that talk about, like, what did we take away and what did we roll back? And if we could roll them back, you know, because we had to, did they really need to be there in the first place? Like what really happened when that didn't go down? Really big controversial examples would be testing and the SATs. There are countries around the world that certainly don't rely on testing in the way that we do, like Finland or other places, or even Singapore, who's now making a big pivot after realizing that being in the top five is generating terrible mental health outcomes. What I'm hoping is that we come back post-COVID with a, not sort of a fleeting, let's have a reflective look back, but a renewed sense of urgency around like, were we creating more barriers to learning than we were solving for by generating some of the structures that we had in place? And how can we do that differently? If we organize our entire year around giving kids content that leads to a standardized test about that content, is there a way to really reshape and rethink it around student-centered learning rooted in passion, that's rooted in deep learning, that's rooted in really building skills for independent movement and thinking. And I think the challenge will be how to figure out how to do that in a blended space. I read an article about unschooling yesterday, the unschooling movement, and for some that's a really extreme, right, way to think about it. But the reality is, depending on how these things are structured, young people will find ways to build the skills that they want and need if the learning environment is set up to be conducive to it and if it's valued. I think it's hard to have a student-centered learning environment in a system that has had these persistently low expectations of you. And so I think if those things can start to, to shake loose at the same time, you can see some really incredible things happening. I'm hoping this changes us as a society as well. I mean, you think about the environment and for all of the human suffering, and there is an, an unbelievable amount of human suffering, and I don't want to discount that everywhere. Unemployment rates and how many workers there are in an informal economy with no safety net, that whether they're walking back days in India back to their home villages or whether they're in an informal economy, a service industry here in the US and suffering for it, it's extensive. At the same time, I think that our culture and our society has always had a hard time grappling with really big complex ideas that don't feel like they're on your doorstep. We're pretty decent at disaster recovery when it's a localized disaster. How do we get over a hurricane? How do we rebuild after a tornado? How do we do those things? Climate change feels too elusive and far away and 
so would a pandemic. You know, there was someone interviewed on NPR this morning around two years ago, read an article that like, we are unprepared for the next global pandemic. Bill Gates, eight years ago, said the next thing that happens to us will not be a war or a terrorist attack. It will be a virus. It will be a virus. And so it's not that this knowledge that this could happen wasn't out there, but as humans, we have a really hard time attaching ourselves to these things that seem more abstract and complex. And what I wonder and what I hope is can we come out of this about some of these global issues where this is sort of a lesson from the earth? We want to shut this down. We will shut it down. Like, can we learn from that and say, well, maybe the way we were doing it, maybe we should do it differently. Maybe there should be ways in which we adapt our workforce or our way of thinking about school so that we aren't treading so heavily on the earth or so that, that, so that our you know, ways of interacting with one another are interdependent in a different way that doesn't have such an impact. I'm optimistic that some of that will carry through. I also think at the community level, things like, you know, if you can let thousands of people out of jail because they weren't a danger to themselves or others, why were they there in the first place? Can we sort of collectively look at data about some of the things we've done in society in the name of making us safer or more prosperous or whatever else when when really if you look at it against the data that we know is there it's actually made our society more inequitable in some measures less safe and hasn't really accomplished that goal can we come out of it not being willing to accept those things as the default setting for what we need that would be you know pretty amazing i think to be able to do that i'm hopeful that some of it at least gets retained Thank you, Dana Mortensen, for the work you and all the great folks at World Savvy are doing in the world by working to build adaptive and inclusive education systems that, in your words, integrate cultural and global competence into the ethos and foundations of what we define as quality education. You are helping us all to create a world we can live in now and in the future. Thank you for tuning in to the Blue Roads Changemaker podcast. We hope you will follow our work and learn more about how you can get involved and start your own Changemaker journey. Contact us at www.blueroadseducation.org.